Uh, thank you for being here. Um, so the, the title of today's uh, gathering is The Art and Science of Awe, and, uh, and we, we do so humbly because in many ways we've been producing awe as a human species uh, through art, as you heard, with Clear Story as we started our day with the human voice. Uh, and what you're going to hear about throughout the day is really a very young science that's trying to figure out this, this incredible emotion and where it fits in the emotion space. Uh, and what it does for us, and I think you're going to learn that it is uh, one of the most important emotions that we need to very collectively uh, and energetically build into our culture as we do with music and art and the like. Um, so this is a photo uh, of something that you're going to hear about today, and it, it really represents the challenges of studying awe scientifically, which is how do you capture this experience uh, that is so multifaceted, so deep, uh, and so transcendent. Uh, and, and I really think it captures the spirit of the day. You'll hear about Stacey, from Stacy Bear of the Sierra Club. What we've been doing is getting veterans and inner city kids out on the whitewater rivers of California, uh, sort of capturing, as Craig Anderson will talk about, what happens when you have a little dose of awe. Uh, for some of these kids, they haven't even seen a full night sky of stars, uh, and it is as powerful an effect on their nervous systems as you might imagine. Uh, and part of the promise of the science of awe. Um, the great philosopher Protagoras, uh, as is uh, customary in a lot of philosophical traditions, tells this origin story about the human species. And what he writes about in this Greek period is, when he took stock of the human species, he noted, you know, we're not a particularly strong species compared to other animals. We're not very fast. We're not fleet of foot. We don't have giant canines like other mammals. What is it that defines human beings in terms of our sort of signature strength? And what Protagoras argued is that it really is our capacity for awe. It is our ability to revere things, to treat things as sacred uh, and beyond uh, economic calculations or the like. Uh, an early statement about the centrality of awe to human experience. Over the course of human history, and John Hyatt and I chart this in this article, um, in the really the first 2,000 years of humans thinking and writing about awe, or really, it really is mostly a religious emotion, a spiritual emotion. I've portrayed here Caravaggio's painting of St. Paul on the road to Damascus, and then you see across a lot of different religions this experience of awe leading to transformation, where people experience a blinding light and really a radical transformation of the self and the commitments in the world. Um, and then something really interesting happens, which is radical, uh, is, is really the secularization or the democratization of awe. And I think we are here today in many, reason, in many ways because of some of the very uh, radical scholarship of a couple of these individuals. One comes from a very unlikely source, which was a, during the era of enlightenment, as people started to think about the role of science in human culture, the idea of reasoning, from a scientific perspective, the nature of proof and evidence. Uh, Edmund Burke, who is a well-known as a conservative philosopher, he opposed the French Revolution, really thought that we should have monarchies. Uh, but he writes this very radical book, and I think it has this surprising influence on awe, what he would call the sublime, and differentiating it from beauty, which is a different kind of emotional experience that we're really just beginning to understand scientifically. A lot of uh, people who study aesthetics have a deeper appreciation of that. And, and Burke comes along 
and takes awe out of religion, in a way, and said it is part of everyday experience. It's, part, it's accessible to all of us in almost all kinds of perceptual experiences. So he talks about, for example, and I suspect some of you have had this experience, where you'll see patterns of light and dark or shadows, right, uh, from a tree that will suddenly elicit this feeling of awe and goosebumps. Uh, he talks about how some animals trigger awe, how the great ox will trigger awe, but the, the lowly cow is, is some other kind of emotional experience, right? Uh, he makes this observation, and people still contest it to the day because they haven't smelled Alice Waters' food, uh, which is, he, he makes this bold claim, and maybe it's because he's writing in the United Kingdom, you know, smells don't produce awe. And, and anybody would think, well, the Berkeley Rose Garden, come on, you know, so. Uh, but what he does is he says, this is an experience that comes out of the feeling of being around big things, powerful things, what we, John Hyten, now call vast things, and then uh, things that you don't fully understand, right, that seem sort of obscure and beyond your immediate conceptual understanding. Um, even more radical is Ralph Waldo Emerson, uh, and Emerson comes along, you know, he's in a fight with uh, sort of religious scholars at Harvard, uh, eventually gives up some of his membership with, with that tradition, uh, and he writes in his essay on nature uh, about the, nat the perceptual experience of awe out in the woods, and I'll read you a quote in just a second, and again what he is making the case for is our own personal transcendent experience of awe, which is a really radical philosophical move. So what you're going to hear about um, today from the scientists who are humbly following in the footsteps of artists and musicians and painters and the like uh, is uh, uh, probably best summarized as a Darwinian approach to awe. And I want to kind of chart out three big ideas from this perspective, uh, and then you'll see some of the data that starts to fit into this, this view. Um, Charles Darwin, of course, was moved by wonder to describe human emotion in the expression of emotion in man and animals, which guides a lot of the research today, and also his origin of species is really one great act of appreciation of the patterns that give rise to different species. Uh, coming out of this tradition, and I love how he refers to nature as a temple filled with varied productions of the god or nature. Um, so the first idea is that awe, very simply put, helps us fold into social collectives, right? We are a hyper-social species. E.O. Wilson, the great uh, biologist, uh, made the case that this is our defining attribute as a species, is to form communities and political bodies and neighborhoods and to have contagious experiences. We are a collective species, and you'll see evidence here and there that shows that awe does this amazing transformation of shifting us out of self-interest to being really interested in other people. Um, secondly, this comes straight out of Darwin. Uh, we, we, will, we should see universal patterns of behavior that express this emotion. Uh, how many of you had goosebumps uh, listening to Clear Story? That's amazing. I just got goosebumps thinking about your goosebumps. That's pretty <laughs> remarkable. Uh, that is an embodied response. We've now surveyed 25 different countries around the world, uh, and goosebumps are everywhere, and we'll talk about the deep origins of that. Uh, and so we're going to see a, a display behavior, and then we're going to see some uh, physiological specificity. Uh, this is always a very important uh, sort of 
area of inquiry for scientists like myself, is it the case that in the, the process of human evolution, um, that because of the importance of awe and our appreciation of music and art and the like, that particular genes emerge that design physiological systems that help us experience awe. That is always one of the kind of the tasks of an evolutionary argument. And we're going to start to see, thanks to Craig Anderson, a speaker here today, uh, some beginning evidence of that very claim. Um, and and we'll also, I'll talk about goosebumps as well. We have the world's expert on goosebumps in my lab, Laura Maruskin. I'm not sure if she's here today. You're welcome to call her later on and talk about your own goosebumps. Okay. Now, when we confront awe, we immediately you know, confront something that is spectacularly interesting and complex from a scientific perspective, which is, if, and we've done this in now 30 different countries from around the world with this project, which is, if you ask people where do they get their awe, it comes from so many different sources, profoundly different sources. So if I just think about my own experience of awe, I think about Chichen Itza down in the Mayan culture, Saint-Chapelle in Paris up at the uh, left corner. I think about reading the words of great ethical leaders like Mahatma Gandhi. Uh, I think about the leek soup that I had shape at Chez Panisse that one time, which absolutely was a religious conversion up in the right. <laughs> I think about going to in Bhutan, and you'll hear about this in a second, in Tiger's Nest, that temple right there. I think about political awe and the free speech movement here at UC Berkeley, which began in the work of people like Ella Baker in Mississippi, just doing some community organizing and spreading the word about collective organization and nonviolence. And then above all, I think about rock and roll and that great figure right there, Iggy Pop, the, the original source of awe in most human experience. <laughs> How we think about these different sources is that perceptually, and you will contest this and you'll have counterexamples, uh, the first property of awe is it's vast. Right? It's something that is beyond, and I was talking to Matthias, who runs Zellerbach about this, uh, and he had such a great insight that awe has, has vastness built into it. Physical vastness, epistemological vastness, what you know, uh, temporal vastness. Matthias had the great hypothesis that music's awe comes out of stretching time, which is really interesting. No one studied that scientifically. And then it also transcends our understanding of the world. Right? We, don't, we can't fit it into the knowledge structures that guide our understanding of the world. Now, the, the scientists you're going to hear from today have been working from, this is a kind of a classic scientific approach, kind of a process model, and what we really believe, and you'll hear data that fit into this theoretical perspective that we are all building, that when you're out in the woods, riding a, in a river, hearing music like Clear Story, you feel awe, it triggers this sense of, I feel small and things are big. And then look at all the effects that we're starting to document, and you'll hear about these in more specific studies. When I feel awe, I engage in pro-social behavior, Paul Piff. I become more curious about the world. Um, we have a student, Sarah Gottlieb, who's finding that little bursts of awe make you better at scientific reasoning. Um, you sacrifice for your group. You become integrated into your community. Uh, lots of data coming out how good it is for well-being and your physical health. So we start to break down this experience to chart how it connects us to others and builds us into uh, um, a, a sort of a healthy adaptation to the environment as reflected in well-being and purpose and uh, physical health. Okay, so I want to move through um, 
for about 15 minutes, and, and you're going to hear a lot about this throughout the day, and talk about some of the highlights that we're learning scientifically uh, in studying this really mysterious emotion. Um, the first, you might say, is that awe really transforms your mind and how you look at your social world and how you think about others around you. It's an art, a painting by Alex Gray, kind of a psychedelic artist. Um, what we're learning, this is one of the great challenges uh, for humans in our momentary lives and also in the context of our evolution, thinking about what we are as a social species, is to move out of a model of self-interest and sort of gratifying your own desires, which is very important evolutionarily, and then integrating into your action the interests of other people, other people in your social collective. Um, it is, we do that better than almost any species on the face of the earth. We have big parts of the frontal lobes that help us think about the interests of other people, integrate them into courses of action. And what we're finding is brief doses of awe, awe as I'm about to show you, going out in the woods, which Stacy Bear studies, move us from a model of self-interest to really being engaged in the interests of others. And that's why Jason suggested that awe may be a counterpoint to the narcissism and abuses of power we're worried about. So we know, and I'll show you, it, you move from self-interest to collective interest, the isolated self to more integrated self. Uh, preliminary data are showing it starts to break down this us versus them thinking. This was anticipated in one of the great quotes of awe by Ralph Waldo Emerson. Uh, really, our work is just a humble attempt to capture this in, in science. In the woods, we return to reason and faith. There I feel that nothing can befall me in life. No disgrace, no calamity that nature cannot repair. Standing on the bare ground, my head bathed by the blithe air, and uplifted into infinite space, all mean egotism vanishes. And then a lot of people writing about this experience talk about feeling connected to others in a very fundamental way. I would, I would encourage you uh, to read John Muir's The First Summer, My First Summer in the Sierras. It's one of the great expositions of awe. There he refers to the self, the flesh and bone tabernacle, kind of becoming open to all living forms, all sentient beings around him. Hard to do that scientifically, but here's what we've done. Show you some studies. One of the pioneers, Lonnie Shiota, you'll hear from later today. Um, first off, Berkeley's a very awe-inspiring campus. We had people buy a T-Rex, which is over in the Valley Life Science Building. It's a skeleton. It's awe-inspiring. When you ask people how they feel when they're standing next to it, they're like, I feel awe. It's amazing, you know? Uh, those are my daughters when they used to feel a little bit of awe toward me. Uh, <laughs> it's transformed into social disgust. Uh, and to this day, they're still sleeping, so I can say that. Uh, and when they stand on the left bar, when they stand next to the T-Rex skeleton Lonnie found, their sense of self changes instantaneously to a feeling of collective communal con connections with other people. Um, Jenny Steller, whom you'll hear about uh, from later today, took people up the top of the Campanile Tower here on Berkeley. It's an amazing view. I'd highly recommend it. Uh, and then up at the top of the Campanile Tower, as opposed to in the bottom, looking at a beautiful 
uh, setting on Ber the Berkeley campus. They feel a sense of vastness, and then they become more humble with the best measures of humility. Jenny has a lot of data showing little bursts of awe make you humble and really engaged in other people. Um, Yang Bai did this really innovative study. Uh, she's captured tourists. I, captured is not the right word. <laughs> she stopped and gently asked tourists to fill out some questionnaires. They're either at Fisherman's Wharf, uh, or they're looking out at Yosemite that had inspired, uh, Yosemite Valley that inspired John Muir so, and uh, who's a predecessor to the John Muir of today, Stacey Bear, who's sitting over there. Uh, and she had them, she did a variety of different measures, but she had them draw yourself. It's like a drawing of yourself. And they're like, okay. And when you're by the joyful, hedonistic fisherman's wharf, yourself is very big, right? You see it up there, there I am, and I'm in love with this person for at least a little while. Uh, and when you're out in Yosemite, you draw yourself like that. The self becomes small, and we've replicated that in a lot of ways. Very big transformation in who we think we are. Um, secondly is, uh, is there a universal signature, a universal way in which we express awe, right? It's so important that we began with the human voice today, with clear story, because as I'll talk about at the very end, awe in the human experience, in the evolutionary context, predates cathedrals and temples, which are 12 to 15,000 years old. It predates painting, most likely. I think it, there's a good chance it began in song and human voice. Um, and we'll, we'll talk about that in just a second. My lab's been really interested in continuing on in the great tradition of Paul Ekman and Charles Darwin in mapping the language of emotional expression and the face and the voice and tactile contact and the like. Uh, and in particular, what we're really obsessed with is the human voice. Here's some pictures of our facial expressions. Lonnie Shiota's been working on this. That bottom middle one, uh, once you know this, it'll change your life, is sexual desires, the lip lick. If you see people licking their lips around your romantic partners, it's time to intervene. Um, so we got interested in the human voice. Um, how about this for a fact? Charles Snowden, primates, when they uh, see another primate, the great apes, lose a baby, will emit these little sounds called coos that are sounds, sounds of compassion, right? So if a primate has lost a baby and they tip, very often carry it around, the mothers do, a friend of that mother will, will vocalize to say, I feel sorry for you. So we can take human sound and, and go way beyond typical understandings of compassion to push it back as a mammalian emotion. So we've been fascinated by these, um, these sounds called vocal bursts, um, which are little sounds that communicate emotion. Okay, I always test people. You may have heard this before. Don't give it away. What emotion am I communicating with this little sound? I hear it from my daughters quite often. <laughs> it's like contempt, disdain. Okay, here's a good warm-up. I'm going to count to three. Give me your best sympathy sound. One, two, three. Very good. <laughs> this group was primed by clear story. So as part of this project, a young guy named Dan Cordero uh, traveled to 10, 11 different countries, India. He was about to go to Pakistan when the whole country was erupting. His mom called me like, you're sending my son to Pakistan? I'm like, 
Dan pulled that trip. You know, so anyway. But he went to all these radically different countries, presented sounds, had people guess what emotion they just heard. Chance guessing is the dotted line. And you can see uh, all of these emotions are way above chance guessing. One of the clearest signatures of emotion is awe, right? I'm going to count to three and give me your best awe sound. One, two, three. Very good. All right. Uh, how about in a remote people that have, have never had experience in the West, uh, with the West? It's very hard to find these types of people. Uh, but Dan uh, built up a collaboration in Bhutan. Bhutan is a fascinating place. It's very rugged geographically. It was only open to what the West really recently, the eight, 1980s. It's hard to get to. The roads are terrifying. Uh, so Dan went to eastern Bhutan, found a village that had never been around people from the West. So in a way, they're hearing Western sounds of awe in a pure sense. He presented different, here, here's what Bhutan looks like. There's the study that he did uh, on the left. That's me when I went to Bhutan with Leif Haas, his dad, a poet laureate, will be speaking later today. It does make you feel awe. Uh, and what he found, again, awe does really well, fifth from the left, it's, it's this really clear signal of emotion uh, around in Bhutan. Um, this is a very complicated, if you, if you want an amazing demonstration, come talk to me later. We've mapped the space of awe in these vocal bursts, and what you see, this is just individual vocal bursts mapped into a conceptual space that is starting to help us understand what families of, emotion, of, of states awe is part of. You'll see it in the green on the far right there, and it's there connected to confusion and interest and ways of understanding the world. And importantly, it's very different from fear and other emotions. This led to a really fascinating project at Facebook. Uh, I know we have a lot of designers in the room. Uh, awe is right at its heart about design. They asked us, would you help us redesign some emoji or emoticons at Facebook? I was like, are you kidding me? I'm tired of that thing with poop coming out of its mouth or whatever it is. So we gave a Pixar illustrator Charles Darwin's descriptions of emotions, and he just started drawing them. Aren't they great? You can take these individual drawings and actually scientifically code their facial muscle movements. Those are the little numbers on the right. Isn't that a great admiration expression? Like, there's the Dalai Lama. Ah, right. Or how about that bottom one, disagree, right? You have a four-year-old, all right, time for vegetables. Uh, there's sympathy on the right. Those turned into stickers that have been sent around the world. This is what they look like in their animated version. Here comes awe. There's sympathy. Awe. There's embarrassment. I love embarrassment. Disgust. And the famous deadpan. which you better not show us today. Uh, so what this allowed us to do with big data is look at what are cultures doing, how much are they sending these, hundreds of millions have been sent. Uh, look at that, this is just so striking, sympathy. So the yellow means you're not sending much of this around, the red means you're sending a lot of it. I just draw to your attention the Canada-US comparison. <laughs> Angry cultures, we do very well. As Trump crosses the country, I'm sure it's just <laughs> fired up. 
Uh, and we're actually very odd. We, we have a lot of, of awe in this culture. Okay, a couple more points, uh, and then I'll close out this first scientific talk. Um, that's the expression. What about the physiology of awe? Uh, William James was very interested in how emotions are embodied in different branches of the nervous system. We're learning so much about how to study the human nervous system. Um, and so much, and, and Lonnie Shiota, whom you'll hear from, is really a pioneer in this work, so much more precision in measuring very specific physiological systems. One is the dopamine system, which really triggers curiosity and exploration in rodents and other mammals. And Craig Anderson, a speaker later today, has been working on a little genetic polymorphism, a variant of a gene as part of your genome that predicts increased dopamine levels and exploration in different species. And what you find uh, is that people who have a particular carrier of, of this uh, dopamine-related gen genetic polymorphism just experience more awe and not other positive emotions. And that's what this figure is showing you. There are genes in your nervous system building systems that help you feel awe. Um, goosebumps is incredibly interesting, just beginning to be studied. Um, we know, left, left graph here, awe, spontaneously people talk about, and you raised your hands. Wow, I felt this rush of goosebumps up my spine. Well, that's not a human response. That is a mammalian response. You see the piloerection in this great ape when it's in a, engaged in a uh, kind of adversarial encounter. Rodents, uh, particularly rats, show a fluffing up the, of the fur when they're sort of bonding to other rodents to face threat. So we're tracing through these examinations awe into different mammals. Um, this one is one of our most important findings in the lab from Jenny Steller. We have these little proteins uh, in our um, cells in our immune system called the inflammation response or the cytokine response. And the cytokine response is your body's inflammation. It attacks pathogens in your body. If you have too much inflammation, it is very bad for your health. It's one of the most powerful indicators of poor health. It's like you have the flu all the time. Uh, it shaves six to 10 years of life expectancy off your, what you can count on. Awe, and those are the little uh, cytokine molecules going from one cell to another. Um, awe sort of regulates your cytokine response, Jenny found, at a healthy level. It's the only positive emotion that does that. Um, so I want to end with a couple of really interesting challenges. Um, one is the, the the, what Jason said, which is to build everyday awe into our experience of life. We've been studying people in Spain and Japan and China. Uh, this is just a, a, every day we ask them how much did they feel awe. People feel awe about two and a half times a week in very subtle, surprising ways. This is a graph, and I want you to remember this, of what in the top Chinese feel all about, and the bottom the United States. First, I'll draw your attention to this interesting comparison. In the United States, nearly 10% of awe experiences in college students are about themselves, 20 times more likely than in China. <laughs> They're like, wow, I'm so awesome, so I'll write about myself, okay? <laughs> that probably isn't a good thing. Um, but the other striking thing is how much awe comes from other people. Notice the red, interpersonal experiences, someone's generosity, wisdom, strength comes from other people. When Paul Piff, whom you'll hear from 
traveled to uh, Namibia and studied the Himba, who are a people, again, another remote people, living in the context of our evolution, and that's Paul with some Namibian children, had a great time with them. We, we queried what they feel awe about. This is before religion, not a lot of art, very little political, part, no part, political parties, thank goodness, whatever. One of the things that they commonly said was, I was awestruck by other people's generosity. I was awestruck by the birth of a child. Awe comes out of social engagement. So why today? And I think this really sums it up. The Greater Good Science Center has been so interested in bringing stuff to you that meets these cultural issues we're worried about, right? Are we too self-focused? Are we too greedy? Uh, is there a sense of purposelessness? Or are we too stressed out? Is there underperforming health? The answers to all of those for many sectors of the United States is yes. We've got a lot of work to do. But amazingly, uh, awe tends to be the counterpoint to these cultural issues we're caring about. It expands the self. It makes you more generous. It brings into focus your purpose in the world. It gives you a lot of creativity, and it actually is very good for your nervous system, as you'll hear. Uh, and with that, I'd like to thank you and turn it over to the real awe of today, the art. Thank you.